You're listening to Making Waves, a podcast by Wiser. Hello and welcome to Making Waves with Wiser. I'm your host, Izzy Bishop, and this is the careers advice podcast like no other, where each week I sit down with a female leader in the tech space to talk about the waves they've made in their career and the waves that set them back along the way. Each guest will be asked to name me their three most impactful moments in their career so far, and to give advice to others wanting to be successful in this industry. This week, I am joined from Down Under by the lovely Deborah Homewood. Having spent over 20 years working in the telecom sector, Deborah has gained a plethora of knowledge and experience, and I can't wait to pick her brains and hear what advice she can give to others wanting to be successful in this industry. At the age of 17, Deborah started her career as a nurse, making the unlikely jump a few years later to becoming the national sales manager for a fashion retail company. A few years later, she moved to Papua New Guinea working for Worldwide Assistance, being the only single white woman in that part of the world at the time, an experience most mothers wouldn't let their daughters do in this day and age. To reel off her impressive CV, since then, Deborah has worked in management positions at Hutchinson Telecoms, Motorola, Telstra, and was a sales director at AT&T. Not to mention, she won the New South Wales Telstra Business Woman of the Year Award in 2005. Her role as CEO at PacNet was her final job in the telecom sector, where she made the bold decision to industry jump to the role of managing director at Max Solutions, an employment and training provider. Deborah has previously said, As you rise through the ranks, there is no doubt that decisions get harder and impact more people. All this is often at a time when there are less people around you who you can seek advice or counsel from. And I am so happy that you are here today to allow us to seek advice from you. Deborah Homewood, welcome to Making Waves. Oh, thank you, Izzy. Thank you for that uh, fabulous introduction. I'll, um, oh. I'll have to send you some, some, some uh, cheap Aussie dollars in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> you can pay me later honestly <laughs> I really struggled to write that introduction because you have just done so much so I could go on for hours but what really interests me about you is that final quote that I read out from the outside you appear to be a successful woman in a leadership role who's got it all worked out and wouldn't need to seek advice from anyone but would you say that it's quite the opposite that the more senior you get the more advice you need yep uh, look and I came to this realization by accident as most things mm-hmm. um uh, the last role in particular I had, uh, I was assigned a mentor, which I'd never... In fact, initially I was like, oh, you, it's a little bit annoying. And, and uh, it is this because he was assigned... I was an external consultant, but uh, he'd been there a while and, and I was told that he would be my mentor and he could work with me and you know, everything would be treated in confidence. And he worked with myself and the senior team. And look, uh, it was the best thing that ever... You know, in terms of having a sounding board... Uh, in terms of occasionally bearing a cheer squad, someone's telling you that you're wrong. Um, and so somebody yeah. who who was completely honest and had no real vested interest in, in telling you um, things that weren't true or, as we say, you know, pumping up your tyres for no reason. Um, so if he said, you know, that you were doing a good job, well, then, then sometimes that's what you need to hear. You need a one-person cheer squad uh, to, because I don't know... I, I can only speak on behalf of myself and I don't always have it together. Um, the bigger the decision, uh, you should question yourself. You should ask, is this the right thing? It impacts people's lives. Uh, you know, whether you get the strategy right, 
uh, and particularly we know that now. I mean, in the last, you know, since March, we know the importance of these decisions and we're making these decisions blind. You know, often we're just saying, okay, sometimes an aspirational statement. I made an aspirational statement in March, which I said when I didn't know what was happening, I said, we will make no one redundant. So we will keep everybody working. I would say that I had no idea whether that was a doable thing and I had no idea how long or what this was going to look like. So even prior to this pandemic, I think a lot of management is about making these aspirational statements or making big decisions to sometimes be able to sound that off somebody else who you trust and doesn't necessarily have skin in the game and can look at that objectively, I think is really important. Um, and I think it's really good for our mental health. I think it's good to be able sometimes to rant to somebody who mm -hmm. understands the personality you're dealing with and what you have to do. And you can't do that um, with work colleagues like you maybe used to be able to. Friends may not understand the situation you're in and they also could be perhaps not objective enough to help you with those decisions. So I think it's been... I think having a mentor um, is even sometimes more important at, as you become, um, you manage more people and perhaps become more successful or, but that's an unfair term because I'm sorry, in fact, I'm going to pull that back and say more successful is an inappropriate term because you don't have to be uh, in management to be successful. It's, I think success is, a, is an interesting term and success yeah. means different things to different people. So I think though, as you certainly are in management, I think it is important and almost an obligation to have somebody that um, you can talk to and sound things out to make sure your decisions are as wise as they can be and as considered as they can be. And I bet your husband's very glad that you have a mentor because <laughs> you're not <laughs> just offloading on him all the time. <laughs> well, it's really interesting. I, um, I, don't, I don't want, and I don't know if other people find this with their partners, um, I don't really always want to talk about work with you know with him. Yeah. I'm so immersed in it all the time. You know, I might, I, all I want to be able to say is, oh, you know, he's how's it? Oh, God, this happened. Or I might talk about you know a certain situation where I was a bit annoyed, or or I had a good day. Um, mm. But I don't want to go into the minutia because I sort of feel that I spend my whole day, often very long hours, immersed in that. So I want to be able to say it was a good or bad day, generally, and then I want to talk yeah. about other things in our lives you know, whether it be a news story, whether it be nothing or whatever. So I think it is, that's another great benefit is having someone else to talk about work in that environment. It means you can mm. then focus on the other part of your life rather than just spend the first three hours talking about work again. I think that's the healthiest way to look at it because otherwise you are just living your whole life in work. I don't yeah. personally know how people in relationships work together because I really struggled to see how they would ever switch off and that can't be good for your mental health. But as I said in the introduction, and you don't look like it at all, but you have been in this industry for a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you've probably had a lot of managers and a lot of CEOs that you've worked under. Uh, but you said something really interesting to me previously that you made a promise to yourself that if you ever got into a position of leadership that you would be different. So I'm interested to know what sort of leaders did you experience throughout your career to make you think like that? And how have you vowed to be different? Oh, um, I think the one thing is, I think that you can still be a strong leader. You can make tough decisions. Uh, you can be strategically smart and assertive, but you can do it from a, an area of compassion. You can be kind and you can be inclusive. They are not a mutually exclusive skill. And yet in a lot of managers I worked with, 
and in some ways continue to work with, which is disappointing, I have to say, not, not in this role, but I see other managers behave in certain ways, you know, when I interact with them, is this, this sense of that you can't, you can't be a strong leader, you can't carry the burden of leadership if, that, if that's what it is, um, and yet still do from a position of compassion and kindness and, and, and diversity and inclusion. And so that was one of the things that I would recognise that everybody um, is bringing different things to work and that it may be, them. I had a period of time when I was a single parent uh, and that was difficult and it had its own issues and, you know, you're going through a, a messy breakup, uh, you're financially not where you thought you would be, you're not in a great place. Uh, so, you know, I had to manage my life around that and having a manager that, that may could have been compassionate during that time would have been really helpful. Uh, I've I've seen other people struggle with mental health. I've seen um, certainly, you know, regrettably, you know, I, I was my early part of my career. You know, I saw decisions based on gender that were unfair. I saw decisions based on, um, I think, uh, people's culture, uh, uh, you know, where, how, where they were raised, uh, the school they went to, and I decided that that's not the person. I didn't think that you, you didn't have to run a company that way. And, in fact, I also wanted to make sure that HR policies were available to everybody. They weren't just a piece of paper that the company won awards for, which I saw over and over again and, and experienced that. And yet when the staff wanted to access it, you had to go through your manager. And if your manager wasn't um, in line with those policies, then they would just have the authority to say, no, you can't do that. You can't have that extra leave. You you can't access this. You, they're, they're, you can't work from home. You can't, all these sorts of things that you can't do. And so I, did, I was determined that I would be different, that I would, I would want everybody to be able to bring their whole self to work, whatever that looked like and whatever challenges that threw up and try and ensure we had a culture that said, okay, um, we will find a way to work with that and we will find a way for you to be able to bring all of that to work and still be productive and still make a difference and still, you know, work in this corporate environment. That is so brilliant. I mean, you are doing so many incredible things at Max Solutions, which I want to speak about later on in the podcast. But I want to move on to your first impactful moment, which was being constantly overlooked for promotion, despite being successful. So I was wondering if you could divulge and tell us a little bit more about this moment and what happened. Well, it was my second or third time acting in the role, and I'd made it clear it was a role I wanted. Um, and I'd done my time and I had been successful and everyone, my colleagues and peers felt that I had earned the right for the role in, all, in any measure. So the first time I was uh, overlooked, uh, it was a friend of the CEO's was brought back uh, to the company that had left and then brought back. Anyway, I sort of took a, very, took a very deep breath and thought, okay, and I had a very big talk uh, with the CEO at the time and and we talked about the geography of where I was living. Sometimes Australia is a difficult place and my ability to relocate. And I said I would be willing to relocate to Asia if that's what sort of what was required. So, you know, yet again, these the people weren't, didn't survive. And so I was acting again in the role. And this time I was assured the role was mine. And they were going to announce it at the leadership conference, which was held offshore. I literally had had no sleep for a couple of days and, and flown back so I could be at this conference. And um, I jokingly said as I left, if you're going to change your mind about this announcement, you should let me know now because next time you see me, I won't have slept for 48 hours and there's lots of yeah. laugh, laughter <laughs> at the bar, you know. <laughs> anyway, I, I turn up 48 hours later uh, back to um, the conference and I was literally pulled aside at the bar and said, 
we're going to announce uh, there's someone else. And it, it, was, it was a friend of the CEO's who had been retired for some time and he'd brought him back to do the role. And he was there. And they were going to do oh it Oh, my goodness. Everyone. So it was like a setup. It was. And, um, <sighs> look, I'd like to say I was, you know, either, either you know, uh, outraged and indignant and spoke well and, you know, or, or I handled it. I just sort of took a big deep breath and handled it. But that's not what happened. <laughs> I, <laughs> not I, quite the reality. It's not quite what really <laughs> happened. And I, I, you know, I was very upset. I burst into tears um, because I was just so shocked and I was exhausted and I was furious. And I think, uh, you know, I, you, look, it's particularly true. It's not true for all women, but it's true for a lot of women. When you're angry and frustrated, you know, you, you cry. It's not that you, you know, yeah. just, you know, the, the eyes leak. And, uh, you know, and anyway, <laughs> just I was... wind blowing in your it's face. Just, it's exactly. <laughs> and so we spent a lot of time managing that, I think. And But this time I just couldn't be bothered managing it. So I was really... In, in some ways, looking back, part of it was funny because I think they just did not know what to do with me because not only was I... I mean, I was... I was... There was, there was I think, stuff coming out of my nose. I was just... You know, it was horrendous. <laughs> I tell people this story and the look of horror on these young women's faces in particular, go, oh, my God, it's my nightmare. And I wasn't that young. And so, you know, it was just all horrible. And I, I remember standing at the bar with my hand up saying, just ignore me, ignore the crying, this is bullshit. And I, as I'm saying this, you know, hiccuping through sort of, I think, snotty tears. <laughs> and they just looked horrified. So I, I walked off to my room and tried to pull myself together and I really couldn't. Anyway, look, the long story short, I told them I wasn't going to come to their lousy conference. So I was, <laughs> I was going to go, I was going to go shopping, which I did. And uh, the next day I just refused I mean, much to go more enjoyable. for the announcement. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't recommend this approach. Um, but look, I think when I, I, I got home and I, I was all, you know, terrible about how I, you know, sobbed over everybody and I, you know, made a fool of myself. And I sort of actually thought, well, I, I, I don't know, I, I, I did. I was tired. It happened. And I think the reason was I was so frustrated because I knew in this time that I, that job, I deserved that role. I did. And I knew that this was ridiculous. That this was just now... This was just about, I was never going to get promoted any higher. And so I wasn't going to get anything. I don't know why, I, you know, we can throw out that it was gender. We can throw out a whole bunch of stuff. I, I don't know. But the, whatever the reason was, is that I wasn't going to no matter what I did. And I was furious and sad that I had, not just in the last six months, but for years I'd worked and put my family second. And mm. I'd missed a whole bunch of things through travel. I was never home. But at that point I thought, why? Why, you know, I... What was I doing all this for? And it did make me stop and think. And it made me realise that, you know, a couple of things. It's, you know, I thought it's okay to have an occasional big breakdown at work. The world won't end and it won't hurt them. Yeah. We spend all our lives putting on this corporate face. We spend all our lives trying to present ourselves to the world about particularly professionally what that should look like. And I think we've done ourselves a disservice. Back to what I was saying about bringing your whole self to work, you know, <laughs> We do have crappy days. We do have other things going on. And while yeah. most of us will try and manage it, sometimes you can't. And, and so that was a really telling moment for me that, you know what, I, I wasn't a lesser person. I wasn't less professional. It was a shitty thing. And it made me stop and think about my working life. It made me stop and think about what was going to happen here. It made me think about my values. You know, what was my value here? And so I, I went away and did a lot of thinking and, and, 
And I didn't make any decisions quickly. I decided that I was just going to focus on the here and now and the job I had. I became very fit. I, uh, I got up every morning and instead of getting on the phone at 6am, I went for a run and I cleared my head and I spent time with my family and just did my job. It's like going through a yep. breakup, isn't it? Where it was you like just going get through. your life in order and yep, it really you look was. the best you've ever looked. Yeah, I thought, you know, like exactly right. It's like, you know, well, look at this, you know. I'm, and, you know, as I watched this poor man just fade into today, he was exhausted. You know, like, I'm like, I feel yeah. great. You know, work's going well. It's like, you so. take that job. I don't want to... Right. Fine. <laughs> I don't want your lousy job. Exactly right. So I think, so, but it, you know, it wasn't the big career. You know, when you talk about, you know, you're told not to cry at work, you're told not to do these things, you're not to, you know, I think sometimes, well, that's just ridiculous. I mean, this, this pulls into this whole thing about being stoic and, and not being able to lead from compassion. If you can't be yourself occasionally, if you can't, I mean, there's a line and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But it just, it did, it made me realise that, you know what, some of this stuff doesn't matter. And you've just got to shake it off. So I, was, uh, I recovered, I rebounded, I was resilient. It made for a great story and ultimately um, I, I was able to laugh about it. But it also made me realise that um, I was wasting my time. If I wanted to, I, I, if I wanted to pursue a, a career in terms of in, in more senior management and to proceed within that company, it wasn't going to happen there. I would have to move somewhere else. Mm. Uh, and I wasn't prepared to do it right away, so I, I rebuilt I made myself, I got well, I got healthy, I spent time with my family and took a very deep breath and, uh, and then before I decided what to do next. And it, and it was, yeah, it was an interesting time. In a way, obviously, when you're going through that situation, you must be thinking, this is just the worst it can ever get. I am yep. never going to rebuild from this. But looking back, you must think, actually, that's probably one of the biggest and best lessons you've ever received because all your walls got knocked down and you could build them up and build it in a, sorry to be very cliche, but in a way that you want and like rebuild your life and your career. And I think that is so true, what you said, that women put up this facade, we have this mask, we don't want to show our emotions because unfortunately women are seen as emotional and if we're emotional, we're weak. But sometimes our emotions can be the strongest thing that we have. Yep. And actually being really honest and true with how we're feeling and let people know that no, we're not okay, like you said. And and I think it's really important that more women are more honest with how they are feeling. And I completely agree with bringing your whole self to work. But this was the catalyst you said for you leaving the telecom sector and working for Max Solutions and wanting to change your life and go into a different industry in a different role. Was it an accumulation of things throughout your career or was this moment just so awful that you were like, I need to get out and do something different? I think it was an accumulation because I think I realised, I, I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to keep banging my head against that same wall, which is, you know, you can only sort of go so far. And that's not to say that that was the same wall for others, uh, you know, maybe it was just me. I remember once I was with another telecommunications business and they brought an internal, you know, one of those consultants in and we had a big love in and she reviewed the team and she said, you know, this is a really interesting team. We were quite successful. And, uh, and she said, you are a pack of sharks. She said, you know, this is a tough team. You all play the game hard and you play to win. And she said, even against each other. She said, I'm just not sure how you all survive. And everyone else thought that was funny and I was a bit horrified. I was horrified by this. I thought, she's right. But that's exhausting. It's exhausting. You know, like you just, you know, there's no sort of collegiate 
uh, way of behaving. There's no one, you know, who, who there's no working together. Um, there's no collaboration. And I realised that at that time, there was a lot of that in the behaviour I saw um, in my options within, um, within telecommunications. And also in my career, even though I've moved around, um, you'll notice I didn't go to competitors. I went to different sectors. So I also found that I was quite loyal to wherever I worked. So I couldn't go and mm. go to a competitor and do so. I, if I was offered a promotion at a competitor, um, I, I wouldn't take that because I feel that I'm all in where I am. So I'm all in. And if I'm going to take a promotion, it will be somewhere either aligned or different. That's really honest that you're yeah, putting your full self into that industry. And I also think that's quite important for you just to stay sane, because otherwise, mm. if you're moving from competitor to competitor, you're just going to get wrapped up in the same <laughs> same thing. And it's yeah. difficult for you to get out and, and see it from an outside view. Um, so you mentioned that working for Max Solutions, where you're currently working, that the why is really obvious. Did you struggle to find that why in your previous companies working in telecommunications? Yeah, I think so. For a while when I was with Telstra and even Motorola, the why was well easy for me. I don't know if it was easy for anyone else. I was in the emergency services aspect of it. So we were providing services um, for emergency services. So if that uh, one of us said it was triple O or, or 911, um, what is yours? Yours is 999, isn't it? Is that 999. your emergency? 999, yeah. yeah. So, um, and so of course, if that didn't go well, if the phone line dropped off or there was no connectivity, I mean, that was pretty dire. You know, if someone's calling 999, mm. they can't get through. So so you could think about the why in those regards and, and, and you know, building communication systems for emergency services. For the digital radio, we were building a network in New South Wales. Um, we were bidding actually for a network in New South Wales just after... Um, some significant bushfires, much like we had last year. And so people had died and the communications hadn't worked and we were building this network. So going out with fire, with fireys and police and trying to get this network right so that in moments of crisis, because there's a big difference, isn't there, between um, if you're using a two-way radio and you're saying, don't shoot, if that network clips at the word don't, don't. you know. Yeah. So <laughs> you think about little things like that. So you think about the why. But it, yeah, it is. So I always try and find that. And if I was managing people, the why is getting it right for those people. But I think it's, it is harder in some of these sectors. But I think there's a challenge for management. I think management have to find the why. I think it's really important they find that why and they articulate that to their people. And because it's different for everybody, but I think we have to make an effort to try and do that. But yes, it, it is sometimes harder when you're sort of selling space on a submarine cable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're like, why? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> so you made a huge jump from telecoms to your current role, as we previously spoke, but you also made a big jump at the beginning of your career, going from being a nurse to working for a fashion retail company and then to a submarine cable company, as you just mentioned. Mm. So this brings me onto your second impactful moment, which is realising that certain skills are transferable and you don't have to be defined by the sector you start in or in fact ever. Can you elaborate a bit more on why you chose this as your second impactful moment? The one thing people, the most common thing people ask me if I'm talking to people about careers or what I do, they go, oh, you know, they, they're fascinated by the change of careers. Um, it's, and, I, you know, I, initially when I did it, it just didn't seem odd. You know, I, I nursed and I loved nursing. I was 17. I, we were still 
Um, I was old enough to be hospital trained nurses, so it was very old fashioned nursing, and we wore the hats and the paper caps and uh, even Love it. Um, a veil. I believe I had a I had a white veil when I was a, a sister, as we were oh, called wow. then. Oh yes, fantastic. Uh, so yeah, very fancy. Um, so. But it, you know, it was all about people. It was a great career. And I really, you know, I loved it. Um, I, I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed everybody I worked with, both my, you know, I'm still friends with a, a bunch of girls I trained with, but also the patients and their families, and I loved it. But it was brutal. It was shift work. You know, uh, all my friends were, you know, either working or at university, they had weekends off and going out, and I'd be working shift work on night duty. So when I graduated, I thought I'd take a break. And... I'm still on that break, basically. I, I was always going to go back to nursing and uh, I was going to take a break and I ended up doing something very different. And when I realised I did this, this role, um, I realised that the skills I'd learnt from nursing were brilliant in helping me managing people and conflict and, and being resilient and, and selling. I mean, selling something is all about people. It's about listening. It's about... You know, when you're a nurse, you're seeing people at their very, very best. You're seeing moments of great grace. But you're also seeing people at their very, very worst. You know, so, and so, um, and you're also, as, you know, here you are at 17, 18, dealing with people on the very worst day of their lives. And for some of them, you're helping them on the very last day of their lives. So you take all that over the years and you go out and you're managing people, you're selling to people, you know, like that's a breeze, you know, someone cranky because they don't like the product you've sold or it's not doing what it wants or, you know, a manager that doesn't like what you're doing and, you know, say, okay, so, you you know, I found that that, I found that really easy. Other people struggled with it and that was because of my nursing. And then I realized that these skills are something that you take with you no matter what you're doing, being a good communicator, uh, being able to listen. Um, having, a, I suppose, you're learning a pretty good work ethic uh, and being resilient, uh, no matter what things are thrown at you, these are skills that companies need all the time and increasingly in management. And again, we've seen in this pandemic that people with those skills, people who are resilient, people who are good communicators in very different, like the way we're communicating, and that's, that's the only way you're communicating, the people that are compassionate, the people that can make decisions under pressure, um, with all those other ones that are coming out in front. They're the ones that their people are saying they are great leaders and they're getting us through this and their companies are getting through these really difficult times. I say all that and yet it has always been difficult for me, except for that first time, which is by accident, I've had to prove my point every time as I've changed careers because either the recruiter doesn't believe you or the, the, the sector thinks that they're so smart and clever that you, know, you can't possibly learn this. And so particularly mm. in telecommunications, you know, there's lots of engineers and they're very smart and um, they think if you're not an engineer, then how could you possibly understand uh, how these networks are built or how they run? How could you possibly uh, run a company that basically's livelihood is in, in some, some of the most high-tech areas? Um, but you can, as it turns out. Um, that's why you've got engineers, because they know what they're doing. I, I'm passionate about it and, I, and uh, I, you know, now I've got history to say, well, look, I've done this and I've been successful. Yeah. So, you know, I was just going to say you are living proof because I think you're right. Most people would just go from competitor to competitor in a very similar company, very similar structure, doing a very similar role because that's where their specialities lie. Whereas you've gone to different areas in the sector and you've proved that you don't have to stay in that same area because you do have those transferable skills. And I think it's so important what you said there that you don't have to be defined by the sector that you start in because I mean, 
mean, who knows? One day you could become a nurse again, Deborah. You never know. <laughs> I could. I, I'd, I'd be a bit also... frightened if you see me coming towards you. You know, if you're feeling unwell, <laughs> I'd, I'd just, yeah, I'd just get up and run. But, but, but yeah, Stay you never clear. know. Do you feel like people often see their careers with blinkers, that they've just got to follow this one path and they can't leave that path and go down a different route? I, and I think absolutely as you get older, I think when you're young, you know, well, well yeah, you can experiment. People go, oh, you're going to jump around here. You mm. work for two years. And they talk about millennials and they talk about young people. Oh, they'll jump around for a while. and So it's kind of acceptable. But then there's a certain stage in your life when it suddenly becomes not acceptable. So when you kind of go like, you've kind of got to grow up. So the older you get, the harder it is to do. And that's at a time when I think we want to change, when we want to be reinvigorated. We don't want to be trapped when we're in our 30s and 40s. You know, we've, there's a lot about our lives that is that. We've got a mortgage, we've got a family, we've got other things. I think it's invigorating and it keeps you mentally alert uh, by thinking about, well, I, don't, I can take these and I can go over here and do something. That, because I'm not the person I was when I'm 20. I'm not the person I was when I was 30. So why could you not continue to change just because you're getting older? And I think you bring not just transferable skills, but you bring life skills then also to the role. Mm. Um, but, you know, you have to be pretty stubborn about it because no one wants to hear this. Yeah. But I, 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 think, I, think, <laughs> I think we'd be better we'd be better off if people were able to move around a bit more. And I think we'd be happier. Yeah, I think so. And you learned a lot of those life skills um, moving to Papua New Guinea that I mentioned in the introduction. <laughs> and then you came home, uh, you started working for Hutchinson Telecoms, and then three mm. years later you felt pregnant and got made redundant, which brings me onto your third and final impactful moment where you wrote, being made redundant twice, just in case <laughs> I didn't get the message the first time. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so let's start with the first time. What happened? Why were you made redundant? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think they were, certainly I was pregnant and I had been moved sideways because I was pregnant. That's what used to happen. It wasn't unusual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, I will tell you, um, I was furious about it, but I didn't think it was unusual. There was no such thing as maternity leave in those days. It was unpaid maternity leave. We had 12 months. Um, they really didn't want to keep a role open for me. And so it was just easy for them. But I was horrified. I mean, I was absolutely, I was devastated, you know, and, but that was, that particular redundancy was, was a great one because I ended up being able to have six months at home. So I'd had Sarah and I'd come back to work and um, I'd had two weeks off because there was no maternity leave and I couldn't afford to have a leave with no pay. And so I came back and they made me redundant and I was able to have you know, six months off with Sarah before I went and found work again. But the, the feeling of rejection, the feeling of the word redundancy, it's so, it's just horrible. You know, even though yeah. when I calmed down, I was okay, but it's just like you're on the scrap heap. You're just redundant. You're, you're worthless. Whatever you do is not good enough to stay here. Like that's, that's, that's it. So it's, it's awful. Work consumes your life to be told that even if it works out okay in the end, that sense of, um, loss is real i'm sure a lot of people can resonate with what you're saying at the moment um because lots of people are being made redundant at the moment due to covid you do almost feel a bit ashamed don't you of being made redundant and you're like a bit embarrassed and you don't want to say it but sometimes it's nothing to do with your skills it's nothing to do with your work ethic it's just because of restructuring of the company but yeah i want to move on to the second time that you were made redundant it was at AT at&t where you actually asked for it and put your hands up for the redundancy um but you were really upset when they actually gave it to you so why did you put your hands up (laughs) 
think, well, I think it's, well, because it was a really good package, right? And I was not happy and I wanted to move on. It was opportunity. And uh, though in the days when redundancy was almost worth having and there was jobs around and you think you're just going to get another job and it turns out to be not that simple. But, um, you know, I heard they were thinking about it and so I thought, oh, I'll put my hand up for this. And, but, of course, they're supposed to say, no, 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 not you. You're so great. Yeah. We can't. And they don't. <laughs> It's like it's, you know, it's like it is like being dumped, you know. It's like it's you, not me, you know. They go, oh, well, okay, yeah. that's fine. Here's a check, see. You're like, no, 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 no. You're supposed you're to like, go oh, down. Really? Yes. Yeah, so you meant to run after me. That's right. It's like that <laughs> sense of rejection. I, and I, I just, you know, and we, we laugh about it, but in the role I'm in now, we see, I work with people who are unemployed. And you're right around the pandemic and, and COVID and what's that doing to people. So I think it's becoming in um, sharp focus now. But I, through personal experience and, and, and family and friends, sometimes, and as weird as this seems, the worst day for people's lives is when they've made redundant and they're, or they find themselves unemployed. Mm. Because everything, they, their lives are tied up in this job. And not just because, you know, and it's, you know, and there's the obvious reasons. There's the financial reasons. You've got, you know, children to educate. You've got a mortgage. You've got to feed yourself. You don't know where that, that's going to come from. You're living on the edge anyway. But even if you're financially okay, I know people who have been financially fine and they've lost their job and the devastation that that has on people and they can't redefine themselves. They're ashamed. Um, they, they, they don't know what to do. Their whole sense of self goes and they spiral into terrible, terrible depression. And I... So the lesson for me, I, I was fortunate. The first one worked out really positive. The second one uh, did as well. But I, I remember that feeling of shame. I remember that feeling of what if I don't get another job. I remember the feeling of, they should, you know, am I not good enough? That all, you know, everything, your whole value is tied up in work. And I've taken that and I'm very conscious of when I'm talking to people about losing their job and also now where I can help people find work, um, hopefully, but there will be some people in this pandemic that will never work again. And that's, that's the reality. There are some uh, people who are in their 50s who may never work again. And that's, you know, when you stop and think about that, that's horrendous. I think we have to have some compassion and think about how we deal with this and where the value of work is. I have some really strict rules around when we make people redundant. I don't, I, I can never understand why people make, effectively make people redundant in December, January, or fire anyone, or whether it's done to your fire, unless there's a compelling reason the company's closing down. You know, be better than that. I mean, be better than that. You know, like, get yourself more organised and think about the message and make sure you're supporting them afterwards and, and there for the long haul. It's not hard. It really isn't hard. And, mm. you know, I think that I see that mishandled a lot uh, as a process and that, that care is not is not given and I think and that recognition of what that can be doing for someone so that's in for me that's why that has remained a really important thing in my management side and I think it has also guided me through this pandemic and how I've worked with people who we are now seeing but also importantly people I, I work with and make sure that I'm sure we don't always get it right but we have the intent to get it right. I mean, you sound like the most incredible manager. I would love to work for you. Please sign me up. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know that you'd get necessarily that great a cheer squad. I don't get it right, just like everybody else. But, you know, I try. We try. You're only human. Um, and I finally want to talk to you about um, how you got your role at PacNet, because you mentioned to me previously that the mm. CEO didn't believe in you at first. 
and you actually had everybody else in the team backing you up. And then you mentioned something which is really interesting, that paternalism is a thing. It is more dangerous than sexism. And I briefly want to talk about that because I think it's so true. It is easy to call out sexism because of the Me Too movement. And it's very obvious when somebody is being sexist. But when somebody's being paternalistic, it's a little bit more difficult, isn't it, to call it out? Because the man can just say, oh, I was just trying to help. I was only being honest. Yeah, yeah. I think think that's absolutely right. I think paternalism has done me more harm often than outright sexism or uh, Mm. in the past and you're right it's shrouded in in you know that they're in theory coming from a good place um and they're not really actually um and so yeah look certainly uh no this uh the ceo i had to go overseas for the interview i think every person interviewed me and everyone said yes and um the ceo who told me in in his defense said i don't think you can do the job but everyone else thinks you can so I'm going to go with them, basically. Good luck with oh, that. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, that's right. I'm so excited. Um, I'll just give mum a call. Uh, so, you know, so, um, and he said they're a really tough group. And, you know, they weren't. They were no different. They were just, in fact, many of them have remained friends. They were, yes, there were challenges, but not because they were men. They were just challenges and, you know, they were just people and, and it had to be it had to be dealt with. So I didn't find that any more difficult than any other role. But, yeah, I found a couple of times it still is something that happens. Uh, I find it comes across as kindness and uh, and they're just trying. But it's it's unintended bias. It is it is absolutely unconscious bias. There's no malice in it. That doesn't make it. That's like saying, you know, un, um, unconscious bias is OK to be racist. Um, it's OK to not. Uh, to to view people with disability different because you don't even know you're doing it. And we all know that that's not okay. And I think it's the Mm. same here. Uh, And we've just got to call it out. Yeah, definitely. And I did say that would be the last thing I wanted to (laughs) speak about. But there was one more thing that I can't end this podcast without mentioning because I think it is incredible. At the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that you want to be a different leader and change the way that people have led teams. And you've definitely done that with Max Solutions. You said that when you first started, 75% of their sector was women, but there were no women in leadership roles. Can you share with us now what that statistic is in terms of female in leadership roles? So we remain in the high 70s at the front line, our uh, our staff are women, um, and we're trying desperately to get more men in at the front line because diversity is diversity, uh, and I think we're all better if we have more equal numbers. But we are at senior management, so we are 50-50 in senior management now. And at the general management or our state managers levels, we are also 50-50. And at our uh, regional manager level, uh, we are majority women. So that reflects the the front line. So we have hard targets on uh, diversity as well, on disability, um, on Indigenous, so if, uh, First Nations people. And uh, so we are continuing to make sure that we we take that diversity. It's not just around gender, it's around diversity as a whole. So cultural disability, we make sure we have hard targets and we, we plan on ensuring that are we culturally diverse in the sites? We need to be more culturally diverse, I think, at senior management. And we're working really hard to get that right. That is so incredible and I wish you the best for the future. I hope it keeps getting better. I think that's an incredible achievement that you can say we are now a 50-50 split, so well done. But Deborah, thank you so much for appearing on Making Waves. I've absolutely loved speaking to you today. I could have gone on for hours (laughs) and hours, but I've got to let you go to bed. Um, But I love that you are living proof that it is never too late to change career and do something that makes you happy and gives you value and purpose. So thank you for sharing your advice 
advice and experiences with us today. Oh, thanks, Izzy. Thanks for your time. You, you make it easy. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. And I'll see you next week. Oh,